Am I talking about the Chuck Tingle thing, I guess? You are the Texan of the group. I suppose it's my responsibility. Okay. I'm Justin. I'm a Skullcom librarian. My pronouns are he and they. I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library, and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Jay. I'm a music library director, and my pronouns are he, him. And then here's a damn-ass fucking gay, damn-ass rock. What the hell was that? <laughs> Wait, did I say something about a gay-ass rock? And then here's a damn-ass fucking gay, damn-ass rock. I don't understand. <laughs> I, I heard gay-ass. It's, it's like two skateboarding eight-year-olds, and one kid wipes <laughs> out, and the other kid grabs the rock. It's like, here's why you wiped out, bros. It's, it's because... Because and of then this. here's a damn ass fucking gay damn ass rock. <laughs> I feel like I'm having a stroke. <laughs> it's the fourth mic. A gay ass stroke. Yeah. Ooh woo. It's a good video. I'm, I'm so mad you made a drop of me saying ooh woo. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll happen. Stop being quotable then. Mm-hmm. Did I get rid of the other one? All right. We are going to start off with, uh, I guess, news. Is it me first or you first? You first. Oh, okay. I didn't know if this was news more so. I can, of, hey, let's I talk can announce thing. it. A case for library archives, boycott, and divestment. Ex Libris. Yeah, a thing I've been annoyingly tweeting about for months. Mm-hmm. So there's this um, really great write-up by David Stenianus. I apologize, David, for not knowing how to pronounce your last name. And this is actually taken from a panel he did, or they did, he did. My apologies if I've gotten your pronouns wrong. In 2022 for the Society of American Archivists. And uh, basically it sort of goes over um, the history of sort of professional boycotts, like of organizations, like participating in like BDS type stuff in uh, libraries and archives, right? Um, And it was really interesting. I I learned a lot, like um, especially SAA, like they actually worked on a boycott for states that didn't ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. They even moved um, meeting sites in the early 80s like to Boston. Yeah, like staying in like an ERA state, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, And then it kind of goes over like, you know, there's a precedent here of different organizations being like, hey, we're not going to fund travel to specific states based on XYZ reasons, right? However, we start seeing that like once BDS as a concept starts getting involved that all of a sudden oh sadie what is that it was yes yeah uh-huh it was cool. not explained in the article right so bds stands for boycott divestment and sanctions and it was officially like it sort of inspired by like the boycotting of apartheid south africa as a way to put pressure on that government to fucking cut it out like the only way to make them stop was money right and so um bds is a palestinian uh, movement and it's asking people outside of palestine particularly like organizations but also people like boycott certain companies if you can and then organizations should divest from investments or whatever and sometimes they will do more targeted boycotts like we have been seeing now with things like starbucks 
Um, like don't, or like Elbit, right? You know, don't buy Sabra hummus, folks. Don't eat that shit. There's better hummus. But, you know, stuff like that. It's both an individual thing, but also uh, organizations. And several states, I believe like 30 something states, maybe less than that. I don't know, have made it illegal for uh, like work, like in a workplace, I think specifically for workers to do BDS stuff, saying that it is anti Semitic to do so. To you can't contract with a company that is doing BDS in Texas. Yeah. So if you contract with, say, like a food vendor and that food vendor says, I support Palestinians, like that could be enough to cancel a contract in Texas, which I think is like a real case that happened. Yeah. fucking wild. And you can also like demand your money back too, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, you know, look and see what state you live in because you as a worker might get in trouble for doing BDS stuff um, because it legally in your state is seen as anti-Semitic under like the law that like you are, you're bullying the state of Israel, basically. It's fucking bullshit. But there have been a lot actually um, in various professional organizations that have supported it. So for example... The Association of Asian American Studies endorsed BDS in 2013 and was the first organization to do do so. American Studies Association then did so in 2013 um, with more than 60% of its membership in favor. But it only, sometimes when this happens, it will only be like to prohibit, quote, formal collaboration with Israel. But like, if you travel to Israel, then that's fine. But you can't like be sponsored by an Israeli university or something right and it's like non-binding on members because these are bourgeois organizations so Mm -hmm. they have like this whole individualism thing that like a radical organization like the iww is like if you fit these criteria you cannot be a member like you're out it doesn't matter you're like you our organization isn't for you anymore yeah so there are several you know professional organizations that endorse palestinian like the palestinian bds movement in some form or fashion but they're kind of again non-binding to members um they're they're kind of wishy-washy ala sucks around this predictably of course except that you know cert so the social responsibilities roundtable which historically has been one of the only good things about ala consistent consistently right um cert had the very first queer professional organization in it by the way the um gain les- the the task force on gay liberation that was in cert and so they keep passing resolutions about palestine like since you know like the one quoted here was in 2022 um when ala passed the resolution on the destruction of palestinian libraries archives and other cultural institutions and cert has gotten the council to pass several of these resolutions um but the thing in this uh write-up that gave me a little chuckle was um council again acted in 2009 passing a resolution for the quote protection of libraries and archives in gaza and israel and urging, quote, the U.S. government to support the United States Committee of the Blue Shield in upholding the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the event of armed conflict. A cert notes that the resolution was, quote, amended to the point of uselessness. 
<laughs> I'm like, yep, <laughs> Sir is good at calling out people's bullshit. This shouts out to Sir. Can we get some Sir people on the pod? They're cool. So, um, in 2015, a resolution on the destruction of libraries and schools in Gaza was defeated in ALA Council. Um, Sir withdrew other resolutions on um, divestment. In 2021, ALA's International Relations Committee uh, defeated another resolution. However, uh, a resolution on the destruction of like schools and libraries in Ukraine, oh, overwhelmingly pro- approved. That was fine. I think that was and the then, same year. Yeah, that's the same exact year. It's like, fuck Palestine, we guess. But Ukraine is, you know. And then in 2022, just a year later, a resolution upholding the right of librarians to gauge in boycotts. And this doesn't say specifically BDS boycotts, just boycotts, period. Not even related to Palestine. Maybe it was different in the resolution. I didn't go that far because I'm a bad uh, podcaster. But it says that it was defeated in council overwhelmingly. Uh, so ALA doesn't even support the right for librarians to boycott for any reason, let alone uh, BDS. So it's like we d- we pass like ALA has passed all these for Ukraine, but hasn't passed them for Palestine. Um, or if it has, they've been watered down to be useless. They're basically lib nonsense at, at that point, right? And so. So what the point of this article is going over that precedent is sort of going, okay, so like, what do we do, right? So often it's like these organizations are probably not likely to endorse BDS because they have to balance stakeholder activism with actual like financial responsibility. The, this person notes that um, that this approach led them to keep the 2011 conference inside a boycotted hotel. Because like sometimes, you know, if you were going to cancel something, it's going to cost you a million dollars or something. And you just can't do that at that point. If you've already booked it, we book things years in advance in, in this profession, right? And that's the only way to get things booked. So what does actual like corporate engagement look like? And like, what does like librarian engagement like look like? And basically what they're saying is that that so like what what we as librarians and archivists and library workers can do so if we aren't going to rely on our professional organizations to do the right thing here which you know we really can't rely on them to do that depending on where they are is to sort of think about like what we can do individually and this article lasers and lasers in on ex libris products right that's related to libraries and it is something that like we can actually talk about and actually like cause some pushback with i mean sam popovich who we've had on the pod before friend of the pod shouts out wrote about this already saying that like it's going to be hard to convince the real thing here is to convince library leadership and university admin and more importantly university lawyers that the proper course of action here is bds even if it's just hey let's get rid of alma primo right to say fuck out ex libris so this person walks through like a hypothetical scenario and i don't necessarily agree with them all the way but i think i maybe need to think through it more so obviously educate your work for your workforce and your workplace that's what we're trying to do here as well but also there's the librarians and archivists with Palestine. They've got a lot of great resources. Talk with your coworkers about this, etc. They obviously also talk about like, hey, maybe don't use Ex Libris. Maybe use something else. Cool, great. But the, the one that I like 
am not sure. Like I, I see what they're trying to say, but I'm still not sure if it's the right ap- approach. And I don't know. Maybe I'm like it's like the capitalism fear creeping in is doing a slow work slash work to rule with Alma libraries. And so what this would look like, so we couldn't like boycott Alma using libraries like Ex Libris libraries, but to sort of like not reply to emails very quickly. Or to maybe not work on committees, like not join committees with like people who work for Alma libraries, for example. Respond to ILL requests late. Don't do interinstitutional collaborations. Just still do the job, but add a layer of friction. And like I see what they're trying to do because if you are a library, say you're Harvard, which uses Alma Primo, right? It's a it's an ex libris li- uh, library system, and you are. E, you know, an, uh, a Harvard colleague emails you or you get an interlibrary loan request from Harvard, maybe wait until the very last day to respond to the ILL, you know, and it's like, say enough people start doing that, then that might put pressure on Harvard to switch to a different product. And I and I understand that. But what I think is likely to happen is that like, that would need to be way more organized, like to actually have that pressure work. It was just individual workers. Those workers are going to be the ones that get in trouble. And like, we should be putting stuff on the line for this, I would argue, like, let's have some integrity here. But also, it might be putting the people who work at those libraries, like if if they need you to respond to your e- to that email or something, like, and you're not, if you are fucking up their job, it's not the university admin that's going to get hurt there. It's that worker. So, like, I, I I like this approach, but I feel like it needs way more organization and solidarity behind it. There's a reason why you don't just do wildcat strikes out of nowhere, and it's because you need to plan these things and support them so that you strike funds so that like you know things are directed like people are supported like yes strikes are supposed to be inconvenient and they are supposed to be disruptive boycotts are supposed to be disruptive work to rule is supposed to be disruptive but there's a way to do it that has as much protection for the workers as possible i don't want to fuck over other workers here just because they happen to work for a place that uses alma primo but that's my own thoughts here i also might be like misreading the 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 situation wrong and I might be missing something but that's my kind of thoughts here. I I agree with you on that just because like how are they supposed to know that that's why they're not responding to your ILL requests or emails? Like are they supposed to infer that because they're on an on, on an Alma system or whatever it is but or are they supposed to or maybe they just think that you're lazy and unreliable Which as a library. true for me but but <laughs> You know, I'm one person. Yeah, <laughs> get no, your ILL it, late. <laughs> it seems too disorganized to really work in the long run, unless you're like this person and have declared that that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, I agree with you, Jay. Yeah, it like has to be known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I think it's the whole thing about a boycott is people need to know you're doing it. Yeah, like there, like there needs to be like those in power need to be hurt by it, but they have to know why they're being hurt by it. They can't just be hurt because they're just hurt and they go we don't know why this is happening then that doesn't do anything besides hurt them which is still good but (laughs) yeah i mean be lazy at work that's also fine yeah you should just also be lazy at work it's fine yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) you should always be doing work to (laughs) rule if you got time to clean you've got time to lean your job's not that important you should always be doing work to rule never do what's not in your job description thank you for coming to my ted talk all right more news 
Chuck Tingle was disinvited from the Texas Library Association. I guess that's fucking my fault. So I've got to talk about it. So Chuck Tingle was uh, invited to talk at a panel or uh, I believe maybe, uh, no, it was a featured speaker at Texas Library Association annual conference, which is coming up pretty soon. I know some people who are already planning to go, so it's like only a few months away. After accepting it, he got a request The TLA asks the publisher if Chuck would be okay with not wearing uh, the mask, the bag that he wears on his head, which they to which the publicist publisher said, what are you talking about? That's how Chuck presents himself. Uh, The bag is part of his autistic boundaries. And it uh, allows him to express himself and relieves his chronic pain from neurotypically masking and has his private identity a sacred thing. So he can present, but when he's Chuck Tingle, he requires the bag. He also quotes TLA's official stance on disability issues and some other people being masked at the TLA in the past. Uh, An email was sent from TLA saying he could come and wear his mask in the exhibition halls in smaller panels, but not in any of the big paid panels like the one he was supposed to participate in i wonder if something got misread here because like all the panels are like paid for but i guess like if he's being paid they get to make more bullshit rules for him which is again not in in line with their disability issues um and also they had already invited him there was no actual policy about not covering face there was an update on twitter which is probably what really happened which is texas library association are being pressured by the state government to cut ties with ALA and have probably someone probably just got a phone call. Um, I don't know anyone on the steering committee for TLA. Um, although maybe I, hmm. I mean, Chuck Tingle does write a lot of butt fucking books famously. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that has something to do with it. I mean, they have other queer people at TLA. Um, they're going to have George Takei there this year. Well, yeah, but does George Takei write pounded in the ass by my hot Bigfoot boyfriend? Like, <laughs> well, and I think that I was actually, after I read this, I was actually reading through Chuck Tingle's Tumblr because I found it weirdly interesting, but he's promoting not one of those books right now. Yeah. So like the book that he's promoting isn't one of the like pounded in the ass by my Bigfoot boyfriend sort of books. It's like a a gay mystery, but uh, one update to this is another gay author who writes romance novels probably don't have pounded in the butt in the title, but probably just as explicit, uh, withdrew from the same paid panels as him in protest, basically taking the, yeah, basically taking the financial hit and so- solidarity TJ Clune, I think. Yeah. That's the author's name. So go buy their books, go, go so buy his them. books too. Yeah, have your library buy them solidarity. Yeah, so it's probably that TLA wanted to invite Chuck. Uh, Chuck has in the in the original post a lot of like speculation about like why it happened. Maybe he wasn't being taken seriously. I really don't think that was it. I think most librarians in Texas are pretty left liberal um, because I work with a lot of them, and I know that you know most of them are actually quite better than the average Democrat. Honestly, that you see, so because they have to be because like you're gonna be a Democrat in Texas, you might as well go all the way with it. Like, there's no point pussyfooting around doing half measures, you know? So they tend to be like pretty progressive people, you know? So I think someone just from the top said, we're not doing this. We can't do this because Senator, State Senator so-and-so called me and made a threat and some shit. 
It's most likely what happened. Be interesting to see if the TLA responds. They won't. I I looked at their Twitter just in case they like even mentioned it, or if they had previously promoted him. If they had, they've deleted it. I'm not saying they had, but I was looking to see if they had said like Chuck Tingle's going to be here. If they did, they deleted it, or they just hadn't finalized him. I don't know. But anyway, Chuck, come on the pod. You can wear the bag. You can turn your camera off. We won't even look at you at all. We'll turn our yeah. cameras off too. Come on the pod, no Chuck. No one will look at each other. No one will look at each other. So if you know Chuck, tell him. Go on Library Punk. They're cool. We think he's cool. Yeah, and they think you're cool. All right, that was news. All right. Who wants to talk about something Justin's interested in? Great. So we're going to talk about trademark and automated takedowns. Uh, why we're on, a, on this, there was a, a Mashable piece that was doing numbers about YouTube demonetizing Steamboat Willie after January 1st, uh, where someone had done a a monetized video. So this is like a YouTuber has like over a million subscribers. So any video is immediately going to be monetizable. It has the short in its whole, you know, going up there. I would say this is almost fair use anyway, but he's doing his own like voiceovers and sound effects through the cartoon, but he uses the whole thing. And shortly after uploading the clip, YouTube demonetized the video, which does a lot. Um, you you can't get money off of it. It can't embed in third party sites. Like there's all kinds of bullshit that happens. It's limited in the algorithm. Uh, all stuff that a, a YouTuber needs to actually do their thing. So it has a lot of things besides just being demonetized and not being able to get ads. But it shouldn't have happened because Steamboat Will is in the public domain. So that got me thinking: Did Disney misfile a DMCA because Steamboat Willie is trademarked? Like that image of Steamboat Willie is trademarked as well. Because that was some of the discussion happening about like, well, Mickey Mouse is coming into the public domain, but you've seen like the logos and everything before Disney movies. They now have that Steamboat Willie like right before I'm doing the whole Steamboat Willie motions. You can't see it because this is a podcast, Um, but they have him kind of like in a little seal and, you know, it's trademark. It it is literally like this comes from Disney and they use the cartoon itself, which is fucked up. They could just use a drawing, but instead they use the animation. Yeah. So the animation is like the trademark too. It's like a recognizable mark. This comes from Disney, right? So anyway, an update on this, which people might not have seen, was within um, about a day. YouTube had uh, so immediately the the creator, Brock Baker. Uh, I don't know if you should go see his stuff. I, it could be a Nazi for all I fucking know, but had disputed it, which is risky. And I, I don't know if we're really going to get into it, but YouTube part of the YouTube takedown system is you can only contest three things at a time. And if you get three strikes against you, uh, your account can be deleted. So most people don't even contest. They just take it down because that way, if you can test it and you lose, then that's like a strike. Whereas if you yeah. just take it down, it's not a strike. Weird system. So he disputed it, which is risky because you might get a strike. And also what can happen is an entity can do like 20 copyright takedown notices. You can only contest three. And if you lose on all three, there goes your channel. So obviously, like the balance of power is really bad. And that's what we're going to talk about. But this happened very quickly, probably because of the press. Disney released their claim. Reportedly, they did this on other copyright striked videos that had Steamboat Willie because everyone was playing around with it. You know, brand new toy after January 1st. And with Content ID, it has to be a copyright claim. Uh, so what, what people are suspecting has happened, Disney hasn't said, is that this takedown was automated. The Content ID tool was not updated January 1st for everything that came into the public domain, because why would you? There's nothing. What happened? 
happened to YouTube and what they said was, and I've got it, I've got the quote right here. According to YouTube, the responsibility to release claims on content that has fallen into the public domain is with the content ID user, who in this case is Disney. So it's on them to go into content ID and remove things from 1928. But if they don't, who fucking cares? Like they're not going to get sued, right? Because they're Disney and no one's going to bother suing them. So there's no real penalties for false takedowns. The game is highly favorable to copyright holders. I said the big ones, but also pretty much anyone, if you do a copyright takedown, the the assumption is that it's just going to get taken down. So uh, I wanted to talk about, you know, when when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, did they use the trademark aspect of it? And they probably didn't. It was probably just that they didn't change content ID. They didn't update it to say that this is now in the public domain. But it got me thinking, what do people do for trademark takedowns? And what will this mean going forward since, you know, the mouse is still under trademark? Like, what happens when trademarks are violated on a platform? Like, I've never really thought about it. I keep as far away from the types of intellectual property I don't have to know about for my job. So trademarks and patents, I really don't know all that much. I don't know the major laws. I don't know the major cases. And with Steamboat Willie, it's like you're allowed to use Steamboat Willie, including the cartoon, but like the trademark thing is that like it has to be clear that it is not something made by Disney. Yeah. If it if there's even the if if any consumer, because theoretically copyright protects creators and trademark protects consumers. I'm putting big dumb air quotes around mm-hmm. all of those words. Um, but if a consumer would be confused about whether or not this use of Steamboat Willie is by Disney, like if they think it is and it's not, then you can be sued, even if it's like fair use or public domain bullshit otherwise. But if you do not make it clear that it's not from Disney, um, then you are technically then violating their their trademark. Um, even if you're not using oop, I hit my mic. Sorry, a future Justin editing this. Like, even if you're not using like the little animated bit that they specifically put in front of like movies and shit now, if there's no TM on it or anything, it's like if you put like a Nike swoosh in something like you can't do that yeah and and trademark can last forever indefinitely yes as as uh so trademark so like copyright uh, exists as soon as something is created um it doesn't have to be registered uh and um you know obviously has limits on it and doesn't actually have to be in commerce it doesn't have to be sold or anything trademark has to be commercial to be viable and exists as long as it is used in a commercial fashion. So the Nike swoosh could outlast the heat death of the universe if it's still being used commercially, right? I learned all this because I signed up for Nebula and watched Legal Eagle's video uh, course on copyright trademarks and patents for content creators for this because I was curious if they talked about content ID and a very helpful overview of the difference between copyrights, trademarks, and patents as far as what each is supposed to do. It's pretty interesting. Highly recommend it if you have Nebula. Or if you have your boyfriend's password to Nebula. So I'm going to start off talking about DMCA because it makes like surprise returns in this uh, episode. Yeah, fuck you, Prince. So here's basically how the DMCA takedown process works and is currently like legally standing. 
So as of the Ninth Circuit ruling, um, there's a subjective, subjective is important here, good faith requirement that should incorporate consideration of fair use. It doesn't have to because it's a subjective requirement. We'll get into that. Um, But obviously, the takedown procedures in place don't really care about fair use. So how is that allowed to happen? So this is a quote from Evan, E-V-E-N, 2023. It's going to be in the notes. The subjective good faith standard, a good faith belief standard allows for copyright holders to claim a good faith belief, even if completely erroneous. In other words, almost any resemblance of a review process, no matter how misguided or nefarious, will meet the court's good faith requirements. So it's not a high bar to clear. Every time I hear the word erroneous, I think of the musical Chicago. Mm. Continue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Oh, just to just to make sure. So basically it's it's saying if the oh god where did it all go? the laws vibes Co- based yeah like so the copyright holder can just say that they're doing it in good faith even that if it they might- have the stupidest claim ever we promise we promise okay. we're doing it in good faith to prove it's not in good faith you have to prove malice which is the exact same problem with like a libel case which is why libel cases never uh, go forward you have to prove they are acting maliciously which a smart company is never going to do yeah but okay. we'll get we'll get more into that because thanks to a couple dumb youtubers we do have precedent on this yeah two dumb youtubers suing each other didn't h bomber guy talk about this in Maybe a, video a long one time? time ago. Hasn't yeah. H. Bomber guy talked about everything eventually? This is true. Yeah. Let's get him on. That'll be fun. I don't think he's... I know that his friends can't reach him. <laughs> like, I don't think we've got a shot. H-Bomb, come on the pod. He lives in like a forest in Wales. I think he might be a fae. Like, no one knows when he's going to show up to parties or anything. That's probably um, for the funny. best. Yeah. I was a famous YouTuber. To be a weird I would also guy. live in the woods to pretend to be a fae. Also, he got fucking hot when he lost his hair and started growing a beard. Whew. Yeah. So the manual notice and takedown system from the DMCA is section 512C. So after receiving notice from a rights holder, an online service provider must investigate and take down allegedly infringing content. The accused may file a counter notice based upon the belief that the content was removed in error in order to fo- force the OSP to replace the content. The DMCA also requires OSPs to adopt a policy for terminating accounts for repeat offenders. So that's where you get the three strikes thing. It doesn't have to be three, but YouTube made its own rules. Importantly, OSPs do not have an affirmative duty to seek, detect, or prevent infringement. So even if they generally knew that infringement, like YouTube knows infringement happens on its platform, but that's general knowledge. Until they are made aware of a specific case, they are off the hook. And also DMCA creates a safe harbor, which will come up again, meaning if you have the takedown in place, you're allowed to claim protection under Safe Harbor. I think that's like one of the one good things about DMCA is that it's like, yeah, we know all this bullshit's happening. Like, because otherwise we just like wouldn't be able to, I mean, well, intellectual property is bad and we shouldn't have it. But like, mm. while we do have it, I feel like that's like the one good thing about the DMCA is that like we wouldn't be able to have like online content because people are always going to be infringing things either accidentally or on purpose. Right. And I read a lot about trade marking counterfeit today and it's like wow we are never stopping counterfeiting <laughs> that is good an insolvable problem <laughs> good be gay do counterfeiting be gay do crimes I, I read a story about some lady who bought something on facebook marketplace and it like glued it super glued her lips together it was like off-brand makeup that is the bad part of counterfeiting is like that is the bad part in and on your body <laughs> it's like yeah. don't do that. that that's the bad be gay do crimes 
Yeah, buy buy makeup from like Target or Walmart or whatever. Just, yeah, that's just, fine. Just, but like, buy, just buy, do buy, that. Buy fake Chanel bags though, or whomstever yeah, that's for fine. good bags. I don't know. Or steal them. That's, or steal them. That's even better. Even cheaper. <laughs> so YouTube, I think YouTube started 2002, 2003. Um, they got a 2007 case with Viacom that even though they won, put so much pressure on them that they started to create content ID to placate rights holders. This is where we start to see the confluence because we're always hearing like old media versus tech companies, tech companies versus copyright holders. But now that tech companies like Google and Facebook uh, are so big, they have a confluence of interests now. They're all in the same club. Yeah. Corey Doctor talks a lot about this in um, like this is talked about in a Chuck Point Capitalism quite a bit, like the whole content ID system and fair use, yeah. if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Can't remember. So this led to licensing deals, fewer lawsuits. You know, they don't want to be suing each other. YouTube doesn't want to be sued. They want to be in the old boys club. They want to give high fives at the country club. So, you know, they've got a confluence of interests happening. So content ID is really to placate rights holders. It's not really to protect the creators that actually make value for YouTube, right? Objective analysis is used... And this is, I'm going to use the word objective a couple of times. This is not the main one to pay attention to. Objective analysis is used in copyright law regarding unreasonable and frivolous claims. So Hughes v. Benjamin 2020 awarded attorney's fees to the defendant. Hughes was suing Benjamin, uh, which is uh, Sargon of Akkad, Carl of Akkad. He's a right-wing um, asshole that H. Bomber guy has made fun of a lot. And he calls him Carl of Akkad, which I think is very funny. Um, he also ran for like a nationalist seat in the UK and lost because he's a big fat loser. Uh, his loserness is his fatness. He has a fat amount of loserness, not his body. So in this case, Benjamin Carl of Akkad had used something from Hughes uh, to critique it. So he he copied, you know, something clearly fair use, like clearly fair use. Um, he was doing commentary. He was mocking it. He was, he was you know doing what YouTubers do. The claimant was clearly trying to silence critique and they had to pay his attorney fees. So uh, Carl of Akkad was a defendant in this case. Um, Hughes was suing for copyright violation. The problem is that even though in this case, the defendant won, the person who was using the copyrighted content, the subjective good faith belief standard isn't good enough. Um, because in this case, Hughes was bragging on Twitter that they were intentionally trying to shut Sargon down, which then gives you what you need to say this was in bad faith under the current system a company wouldn't be so stupid but luckily youtubers are so this youtuber said i'm gonna shut him down i'm gonna get his ass i'm gonna take his money i'm gonna make him stop making fun of me and they brought this up in court and went yeah this is a malicious takedown obviously this is an unreasonable claim so you can say you can use unreasonableness um and the subjective good faith standard didn't apply because it, it did apply but it was you know outmatched by this was an unreasonable takedown what Evan 2023 is arguing is there should be an objectively reasonable. This is the time objectively reasonable you should pay attention to. Should be the new standard. The problem with fair use, and if you know anything about copyright, you know that fair use can only be determined in a court. So if someone comes to me and they say, can I make fair use of this? And I say, here's what you want to do. Fair use, last resort. Can we license it? Can we do it some other way through the library? Can we get it for you? Fair use is our last resort because the only one who can determine when fair use happens is not me. It's not you. It is a judge. You don't want to get that far. 
because now you're being sued, right? You don't want to get sued. I mean, there are cases that are more clear-cut than others. I don't want to fear longer people out of doing fair use. It is your legal right in United States copyright law that fair use is a thing. It's just that judges are idiots. Also, you don't want to get sued. And what I've always said is determine how big a target you are. If you are a small target, fucking straight up do piracy. If you are a medium target, do good fair use. If you're a large target, do really, really good fair use if you have to. If not, probably you should be licensing because... You probably have the money. (laughs) Yeah. You probably have the money. Give it up. Yeah. So objectively reasonable is like a specific legal term. It's used by cops to shoot people. But in this context, objectively reasonable would mean that an objective viewer would reasonably assume something to be fair use or not a copyright violation. This is not the current standard in the law. The current standard in the law is a subjective good faith belief, which is you can submit this crappy thing and, you know, it's assumed to be in good faith. An objective reasonable standard would mean objective viewer would reasonably look at this and go, is that fair use? Yeah, probably. So this puts the onus away from the content maker who's using the copyrighted material. It put the onus back on the person making the claim because the person making the claim now can't make a shitty claim. They have to say a reasonable observer would assume that this is copyright violation. So objectively reasonable analysis would simply require regular person's view that's fair use, such as audio playing in the background of a video that was incidental, right? So there was that one case of like the baby dancing around and Prince was playing in the background and that was copyright violation because of the way the the fair use standard. But anyone would be able to go, this is clearly incidental use, this is clearly fair use. So currently you don't have to put fair use in your DMCA takedowns. If there was an objectively reasonable standard in the law, which this does require the law to change, then uh, you would be able to say, no, that's not an objectively reasonable case of of copyright infringement. And it doesn't have to go to a judge to make the fair use determination because now you've got this other standard, objectively reasonable, and that's much quicker. So it saves a lot of time. And also, if you have to go to court, the court has more ruling to say an objectively reasonable person would say that this is fair use. We don't have to do the whole fair use analysis. We can just say, yeah, it seems close enough. So it gives like, it rebalances the power. The problem... Any questions so far? No. Okay. So the problem with the DMCA is that it's created for copyright, not trademark. And when I started this episode, I wanted to know about like what happens with trademark. So I started looking around. I found this like this law firm that had a few, you know, had information on rights holders. So it's this is for rights holders. You know what what's going on? So CrossFit Incorporated owns the CrossFit trademark. Several years ago, a blog was started on Facebook called CrossFit Mamas. Um, CrossFit was not pleased, sent a DMCA takedown to to Facebook, which, of course, was initially successful because DMCA is always balanced in the interests of the rights holder. Uh, CrossFit ultimately had to file a lawsuit against the infringer claiming trademark infringement because DMCA is a copyright act. Trademark is different. The blog launcher filed counterclaims that CrossFit made material misrepresentations in the DMCA takedown notice it sent to Facebook because it was trademark, not copyright. The U.S. District Court for Northern District of California agreed and ruled against CrossFit because CrossFit had attempted to use DMCA takedown to process a trademark. So it has to be for copyright. It can't be for trademark. You can't use DMCA to do that. But DMCA is going to come up yet again. Most companies are creating similar systems for trademark violations to content ID. 
ID. So whatever they have for their DMCA, they're creating a parallel process for trademark. So this is from Meyer Indie. This is, uh, I think, the same blog, the same legal blog. And this is a quote. Most social media and internet companies have processes and procedures in place for trademark owners that mirror DMCA takedown notice for process for copyright owners. Mozilla has trademark notices using the same submission and information process because not, but be careful. This is them talking to the rights holder. Be careful because not all internet and online providers are like Mozilla. And Google announced in June, I don't know what date this was, but I think it's relatively recently, that it will support registered trademark owners and process the removal of unsponsored links on Google search, not just paid advertising or downloadable apps from Google Play. So I read a little bit more about this. I'll bring up YouTube again when I'm talking about infringement. But the question I had then is why create a trademark DMCA process when the law doesn't force you to? So the main reason, obviously, is the shared interest between companies and tech, especially as tech grows into a new establishment. I mean, that's the real reason. That's the real material reason. But there's no requirement in the Lanham Act, which is our trademark and, and, and counterfeit act, about secondary liability. It's illegal to counterfeit something, but if you're at a market, like a flea market where things are being sold, who's liable? Like, is the flea market liable? Maybe. And in some cases, they were. Once this got to, uh, and like with DMCA, platforms do not have to verify something is not violating trademark or is counterfeit. They have no positive duty to do that. Secondary liability is a court-created concept based on common law standards of torts. So this is not in the Lanham Act. So secondary liability, there's two types, vicarious and contributory. Vicarious is really hard to prove because it has a high standard. No point in explaining why. It's boring legal shit. Contributory is the one that is more common. So in the 1982 Supreme Court decision on Inwood, this is kind of the test that they created in that case. If a manufacturer or distributor intentionally induces another to infringe a trademark, or if it continues to supply its product to one whom it knows, has reason, or has reason to know, is engaging in trademark infringement, the manufacturer or distributor is contributorily responsible for any harm done as a result of the deceit. So that's why contributory is more common it's easier to prove i like the word deceit like it's so like scheming you deceiver so it's just like medieval game of thrones bullshit very conspiratorial so then my next question was is youtube slash google slash alphabet afraid of contributory infringement and so i went to google i just googled like youtube trademark takedown and here's what support thing for google uh for youtube has to say if you think your trademark is being infringed keep in mind that youtube doesn't mediate trademark disputes between creators and trademark owners as a result, we strongly encourage trademark owners to speak directly with the creator who posted the content in question. Contact the uploader may fix the problem faster in a way that benefits everyone. If you can't reach a resolution with the account holder, submit a trademark complaint to our trademark complaint form. YouTube is willing to perform a limited review of reasonable complaints and move content, will remove content and place clear cases of infringement. So they don't really seem to give a shit. I thought that was kind of strange because contributory seems pretty easy to prove, but Unlike flea markets and other things, uh, when it came to e-commerce, the courts decided to be very, very hands-off. So Tiffany versus eBay, 2012, e-commerce platforms basically have to know exactly what is counterfeit, giving them a generalized knowledge excuse to say they don't know what is being sold on their site. So they might know generally that, same way with copyright, that trademark infringement and counterfeits are happening. But if they don't know the specific instance, then they can't be held liable as 
contributory. So e-commerce platforms have this huge like swath of protection because you have to prove that they knew something. And there are cases like for smaller domains, like if you're a domain hoster and someone registers like tiffanyjewels.biz, you're hosting their website, you're giving them an IP address, you know, and Tiffany, the company sends you this thing and says, this is not us. Yeah. If you don't take that down, you are in trouble. Yep. Domain names are protected through trademark law. Well, not just that, but it's it's that Tiffany is saying we didn't buy this domain name, but they're using yeah. our brand. So it's like clearly not us. And that's that goes from general knowledge to actual knowledge. And actual knowledge is what you need to prove it. So Percival 2020 argues that since these companies are all data brokers, their data on the sales should count as actual knowledge. But I think that's kind of a problem. And, and Percival knows this too, because when you buy something, you have the right to resell it. Like that's for sale. A library buys a book can sell a book and do it whatever you want with it. You buy Tiffany products, you have the right to sell it. How do you know? How would Facebook know that it's counterfeit from a photo? Unless the store name was like Tiffany official, then you could be like, okay, Tiffany sent me a thing and said, that's not our official Facebook marketplace seller. Obviously you have to take them down, but there's so many counterfeiters. There's no way of stopping this. And counterfeiting is like a huge federal crime. Like you can get fined like $15 million for counterfeiting. Like it's crazy, but obviously it doesn't stop anyone. The actual knowledge thing is is tough. So through all these articles that I read, there were some solutions, some fixes, some ideas. Evan2023 wants the objectively reasonable practice to defend against DMCA complaints. There's no incentives currently for rights holders to check for fair use. Content ID doesn't check for fair use. Very little recourse outside of costly lawsuits. Revise the DMCA to add the objectively reasonable belief. It would then require a DMCA takedown notice to contain a statement that the complaining party has an objectively reasonable belief that use of the material in the manner complained of is not authorized by the copyright owner, its agent, or the law, and that would include things like fair use that it currently doesn't have. Percival wants to amend the Lanham Act to give a DMCA-style safe harbor for online service providers, even if they have the required knowledge to be liable. If you have the required knowledge, by creating a safe harbor for trademarks, you're saying, okay, you have the required knowledge, but if you have the takedown process and the takedowns are timely, then even if you had the knowledge that would prove liability for like secondary trademark infringement, you are shielded from that because you have a process in place. Same thing as the safe harbor for copyright. You're protected as long as you're doing something and you only get that as long as you are doing the, re- the notice and takedown and you're doing it quickly. So that's their idea is they want to make a DMCA for trademark. So uh, for the future of the mouse, uh, will Disney support a trademark DMCA? I'm kind of ending this on a lot of questions. Like it could give them a lot of control they currently don't have because they could just send out those takedown notices whenever they're like, oh, this looks too much like it's coming from Disney. It's at least more granular than the power that they have now. And trademark lasts forever. Yeah. On the other hand, the rules would be clearer. And if this trademark DMCA included that objectively reasonable standard, then it could be even, it could make the takedown and notice process more fair to creators. So I think if we combine these two ideas, if you had a DMCA for trademarks and you made it more balanced from the get-go between the rights holders and the creators, you could have something that at least everyone understood the fucking rules about this. Even if the rules are, you know, secondary law, they don't have to do with trademark or copyright, but they have to do with DMCA and DMCA for trademarks. And at least everyone knows what's going on because you really don't want to hit get hit with a 
trademark lawsuit because that could, you know, be jail time. Every state has trademark laws. There are federal trademark laws. You can get in a lot of trouble for violating trademark and copyright and and counterfeiting. I always want to listen to Run DMC when we talk about the DMCA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Solutions. Step one, abolition of intellectual property. Step two, abolition of capital. Step three, Dexy's Midnight Runners playing free daily in the university library. Hell yeah. Those are our demands. Also, Chuck Tingle, come on the pod. Free Palestine, fuck Israel. Yeah. Get stop using Ex Libris products. Mm-hmm. Unisystem migration? Tell them no thank you. Get something else. You don't need Ex Libris. You're not that big of a library, I promise. <laughs> I'm just thinking of how you would phrase that on like a request for proposal, like the the check marks that you have to go through to like rate. Because I, I don't know if this is true for universities, but for public libraries, when you're going out for like a new ILS, you have to do a request for a proposal and you have to have like a rubric. A lot of the time anyways, it depends, but you have to have the rubric on how like you rate the different things. I'm just thinking, is this an ex libris product? Yes or no? If it's a yes, it just automatically removes it from the pool of proposals. Yeah, I mean, you can make the argument that like that like ex libris is a proquest thing and so therefore it's not vendor neutral and especially maybe if you're a place that mainly uses EBSCO stuff or you want something that's vendor neutral, you can make the argument that it's just like too big and complex for what your system needs. There's a lot of reasons why you might not want to use ex libris products even beyond the BDS thing but like sure does it make sense for like really large systems to use ex libris products like sure that's like who it's made for is <laughs> like yeah. really big libraries you but like it's really bulky it's like really hard to run if you don't have a large staff and yeah it's because it's proquest it makes it really hard to work with ebsco um products um and vice versa if you use ebsco stuff um it makes it hard to work with proquest there aren't very many vendor neutral systems out there um but we should be steering more towards them unless you are a place that uses a specific vendor more than others like my library only has ebsco stuff because we have a database because it's a school of 300 people you know so it's like our only database is EBSCO and we have EBSCO ebooks. I don't need any ProQuest anything, right? So those are those are some reasons. It's just, you know, it's bulky and it requires a lot of specialized knowledge. Like to have Primo, you need someone who knows JavaScript. Do you, do you know JavaScript? Like, yeah, if you want to do customizations on Primo, you need to know like JavaScript and CSS and HTML. I taught myself Angular JavaScript when I, when I worked on Primo V, largely with very out-of-date like documentation provided by Xlibre because their documentation is incorrect and out of date. Yes. And I went to the International Global Ex Libris Conference and did a t- presentation about how bad their documentation is and how I had to largely like teach myself and why leaving documentation is good. So... Yeah. So even without Israel sucking, Ex Libris is just bulky and bad. And if you don't have a dedicated like tech services staff of like 50 people, it's probably not worth your time. And Chuck Tingle, come on the pod. Chuck Tingle, come on the pod. Chuck Tingle, come on the pod. I, I love reading about getting pounded in the butt. It's great. Yeah. Getting pounded in the butt by my library card. It writes itself. Should exist. The, why does that not exist? I want to get pounded in the butt by my library card. It's like a great time. All right. It's all good night. <laughs>